Our scripture this morning comes from 2 Samuel. We're looking at the second half of the chapter, so verses 18 through 29. I encourage you to follow in your Bibles. If you don't have your Bible, uh, we have a printing the bulletin for you there as well. 2 Samuel 7, verses 18 through 29. Hear the word of the Lord for us this morning. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you. And there is no God besides you according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people forever, your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, has made, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. This is God's word. Let's pray as we consider it together. Father, thank you for your grace and mercy and love. Thank you that you are not indifferent to us, that you did not simply spin the world on its axis and leave us alone. But Lord, you've given us your church, you've given us your spirit, you've given us your word. Lord, this morning in your church, we pray that by your spirit, you would speak to us through your word, that you would be the preacher and teacher among us, that Jesus would be magnified and glorified in our midst. For his sake we pray, amen. Last Sunday, we looked at the first uh, 17 verses of this chapter, uh, which, are t- which, are, which describe what's called the Davidic Covenant. It's a turning point in, in, the, in the history of, of, of redemption. It's a, it's a time when David, in this, in this story, uh, has nothing else to do, apparently. Uh, and so he offers to build God a house. Sounds like a good plan. Nathan the prophet says, that sounds good to me too. Oh yeah, we should pray about that. <laughs> uh, they, they forgot to pray. Uh, and, then, uh, and then the Lord reveals to Nathan in the rest of the chapter what, what's really to happen. David is, not, is going, David is not going to build God a house. God is going to build David one. And not a house like, you know, like, like, like on realtor.com. We're talking, about a Davidic, we're talking about a dynasty. He's going to build a David's kingdom forever and ever. And of course, we talked about how that eventually finds its fulfillment in Jesus, David's greater son. Uh, that Jesus is, a, is, is, still, is still on the throne, is still ruling. We talked quite a bit about that. 
And so this morning is really David's response. And I've not studied this prayer much before. This is really a wonderful prayer, uh, full of things that we can learn from this morning. Almost, it's almost a psalm. David should write psalms. I don't know if he ever thought about writing some psalms. Uh, but uh, he really wrote really wonderful stuff here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, of course. So if you're taking notes this morning, we're going to break this up into three parts. David humbled, in verses 18 through 22. Israel privileged, verses 23 and 24. And divine promises considered, verses 25 through 29. David humbled, Israel privileged, divine promises considered. Let's look now at verses 18 through 22. We see David humbled. So again, David has just... Uh, it's just uh, heard from Nathan what God is, all God's plans are for his, for his uh, kingdom. This is David's response. And David, King, the King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Just notice a few things for what, how David speaks this, uh, in this prayer. First, notice his posture. Right? Notice he, he says in verse 18, he went in and sat before the Lord. He uh, probably sat before the Ark of the Covenant. The very ark that he described in, in, in the earlier in the chapter as, 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 as God's tent, as I reminded you, is probably patched a few times by now. Probably very ratty looking as compared to David's house of cedar that he's in. So David humbles himself by sitting before the Lord. Um, I wonder how many times I, I actually take time to sit before the Lord. Uh, I think metaphorically, sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm oftentimes found walking near the Lord <laughs> Or wanting, wanting to, for him to kind of touch my hand as I walk by. But I'm too busy to sit before the Lord. Just, just a thought. Notice he asks questions. His questions are, are all humbling, right? Who am I, he asks in verse 18. What is my house? That is, what is my family uh, th that you brought me thus, thus far? Uh, what I really like is verse 20. He says, what more can I say to you? Then he says a lot of more things in the next nine verses. David must have been a preacher. What more can I say? He's, all of his questions lead back to him being humbled. He doesn't know quite what else to say or do except to know that God is great and he is not. And that's a good thing. Look at his vocabulary. Some of these words, phrases. In verse 19, he says, This was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord. It's a small thing for you to establish this covenant with me. It's a small thing for you to promise that one of my uh, descendants will always be on your throne. It's a small thing. It's a great thing for us. It's a small thing for, for you. Um, notice he, he that, that, did anyone catch that? Uh, uh, the end of verse 19, this, this thing where he says, this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. The fact that David's throne and the fact that Jesus will wind up ruling on it one day will influence the course of world history. That's really what's being said there. Uh, that's that instruction for mankind. It's a very unusual phrasing uh, in the Hebrew. Um, notice what else he says. He describes God's promise in his heart in verse 21. Um, and then, um, 
what I really love is how many times he used the word great. I didn't even count how many times in this, in this passage, but it's, it's a number of times. It's a, it's a great number of times. But there's just a sense in which God just oozes greatness, right? Because of your promise, according to your heart, verse 21, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great. Like God, he can't get away from this word, this, this word great. I don't know how many of you remember. I grew, I grew up here in Albuquerque. I don't know how many of you uh, are old enough here to, or lived long enough to remember this old restaurant called Bella Vista. Bella Vista Restaurant, I think it's in Cedar Crest. It's really in that area. And it was a, they, they had a well-known uh, uh, a menu. All you can eat, fish and chips and, and fried chicken. That was their thing. So huge platters of fried food uh, coming everywhere. And, just, and by the way, sadly, it, it burned down. Sadly, you will not be surprised in a grease fire. Um, a, number, a number of years ago, no longer here. But when you, knew, when you went to Bell Vista, you knew that you're risking your life a little bit, that there was going to be a lot of grease. Uh, it was wonderful food. But you know, just, and that, there's a sense in which God's greatness is like the, the grease from Bell Vista. You know, it's, God just oozes greatness. You can't get away from it. His greatness encompasses us. And it doesn't make us, it makes us feel small, but in a way that makes us feel loved and protected. Like a child running to his mother or father's arms. You know, it revels kind of in his or her smallness because dad or, or mom's arms are loving them and protecting, protecting them. Um, God just oozes greatness. And David has also experienced, David's, uh, David also talks here and talks about how uh, because he's experienced God's grace in the past, he also has this promised future grace, right? He spoke, speaks to that in verse 18, that you have brought me thus far. Remember, David is, has been pulled from the sheep, from the, from the, from the uh, sheep pasture um, to be God's anointed. And so David is humbled by God's grace and it reminds us that God's sovereign grace overall God's sovereign grace reigns over us all, excuse me, especially as people. Our humility is the fruit of God's grace. Our humility is the fruit of God's grace. I say that because so oftentimes redeemed, or excuse me, reformed folks, folks that believe strongly in the doctrines of grace, the idea that God chose us before the foundations of the world, in love he predestined us, in his son, we have a reputation, in our, in at least within the, the broader evangelical church, if not the world, of being pretty arrogant about it. Um, and sadly, we should be the most humbled if we believe that God chose us for no other reason than his own glory, uh, that that should be the most humbling thing of all. Ephesians 4 talks about that, verses 1 through 3. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Too often, I think, sadly, we substitute this. We, we think that we should be uh, uh, found worthy of the calling to which we've been called with all pride and zeal, demanding to, be, de demanding to be declared right in all arguments, bearing with one another as long as it suits me. And maybe I've spent too much time on Twitter recently, um, but there's a lot of stuff going on in our world. Um, where we come across um, unworthy of the grace that God has given us. Um, and we are unworthy of it, but, but we oftentimes 
betray our lack of belief in God's grace by the way in which we act. Our humility is the fruit of God's grace. I encourage you, dear friends, um, when you talk about Jesus, um, how can we help but be humbled at what he's done for us? His life, his death, his resurrection. We'll talk a little bit more about that when we talk about Israel here in just a moment. So that's David humbled. And hopefully we're humbled too in verses 18 through 22. Then we see Israel privileged. Let me read these verses. I know they're, they're quite long. They're a little bit long, especially 23. Look with me in verse 23. David kind of turns from himself and turns toward Israel. He says, who is like your people, Israel? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for, for yourself, your people Israel, to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. So there's kind of three things here. Israel is privileged to be a redeemed people. They're a redeemed people. And by the way, because it's Israel, we know that the church uh, continues to receive the promises from Old Testament Israel. We are, in a sense, the new Israel. We are, we are redeemed people, as they were. Israel was not some sort of spectacular nation that was looking for a God to, to worship. God instead redeemed them. He, he picked them up in the bargain bin, right? They were like the second, one of those secondhand things you find at Goodwill. But you know, you and I, we, when we go to Goodwill, we're looking for that, that, that diamond in the rough, that thing that, you know, we're looking for that suit or, or look for that dress or look for that pair of shoes or that piece of furniture that somehow got overlooked, somehow someone donated it, didn't mean to. We are, we are literally the ones that God found in the trash heap behind, behind goodwill. And God redeemed us and made us his people. First Peter chapter one talks about that. In verse 18 and 19, he says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So we were not the $200 item found at Goodwill. We were in the trash heap in the back. And yet God spent his most precious commodity, the, the blood of his own son, to purchase us. We are a redeemed people. We are redeemed people. We are also an instrument for God's glory. Verse 23 says, um, excuse me, verse 23 says uh, that he was going to make himself a name. God made himself a name by doing these amazing things, right? By driving out the people in, in Canaan and, and giving them uh, the land, redeeming them from, from Egypt. Notice verse 26, if I could skip forward a little bit. David says, your name will be magnified forever. And that's what it means to glorify God. We want to be an instrument for his glory. He is to be made much of. Glory is God's greatness magnified. We talked about God's greatness just a moment ago. We don't want to just keep that news to ourselves. We want to pass that news along to the nations. And sometimes the word glory, I think we talk about it in, in, in ways in which we, we probably become very familiar with it. But God's glory is simply means that his greatness is expounded upon. It's made much of. Right, just as a bride is, is kind of the, the, uh, the, uh, the glory of the wedding, as any birthday party, the, 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 uh, 
the young person celebrating is, is the star of that. God should be, in a sense, the star of our lives. The one who is glorified and magnified. And he does those things. He does things so that he is made much of. So we're an instrument of God's glory. We're a redeemed people. We're also a preserved people. We're a preserved people. See, it says that in verse 24, you established for yourself your people, Israel. He established Israel. If God was not behind Israel, he didn't just give Israel a good start in life. He didn't say, you know, here's the land. Um, here's a few rules I'd like you to live by. And, you know, let's, let's talk once, once a year or so. You know, just keep in touch. No, God established Israel. Just as much as you and I are established today, the very fact that we are breathing in oxygen, God has established each one of us that are here this morning. We are a preserved people. But not only does that mean that we're, we're established, but we're also the fact that God always has a remnant. He always has a remnant, even when things look, things look bleak. This is all over the Old Testament, particularly in times when when times were bad, when, 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 when uh, we're first uh, uh, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom were, were, were eventually taken over by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Ezra, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, they all talk about the idea of God's uh, remnant people. That God always protects and chooses a people and preserves them, even when times are bad. You may remember the story about Elijah. In 1 Kings, I think, I think it's 18, that wonderful story of, of King of, of, of Elijah um, uh, defeating the prophets of Baal, defeating. He asked God to defeat them, and, and, he, and of course, God did. You may remember how the, how the sacrifice was, was, was licked up by fire from heaven. And what happens after that? Elijah has a pity party. He feels sorry for himself because Jezebel redoubles her efforts to find him. And Elijah's pity party in 1 Kings 19, he talks about how God, this is just too much for me. And, you know, I, I just, I, 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 I can't do this anymore. And just, it's better for you to take my life. It's very similar how Jonah responds uh, to God's grace in, in his story. But God responds to Elijah's pity party in 1 Kings 19, verse 18. He says, yet, well, I will leave 7,000 in Israel. All the knees have not bowed to Baal and to every mouth that has not kissed him. God always preserves his people and he always preserves a remnant. This scene is referenced in Romans chapter 11, right? Where Paul claims that a remnant of ethnic Israel were turned to Jesus, chosen by grace. And so Israel is privileged. It's a redeemed people, an instrument for God's glory and a preserved people. And because those promises are true for Israel, they are true for us in Jesus of course, Jesus redeemed us. And of course, Jesus continues to make the church an instrument for his glory. And Jesus continues to establish his church. He says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. Not because we have such great plans and great strategies, but because he is great. And his greatness oozes again. And his greatness will, will continue to coat the church and make us his. So those are the privileges of Israel. We saw David was also humbled. Then the prayer ends in verses 25 through 29 with divine promises considered. David says, And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. 
For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. And with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. So first notice what David does. He asked God to do what he promised. Those of you who are parents or have been parents in the past or even grandparents know what that's like. When you made a promise to your son or daughter, when you made a promise to your grandchild, it could be a big thing like, hey, I thought you were going to take us to Disney World. (laughs) It could be a small thing like an ice cream cone or playing basketball in the backyard or whatever. But you can almost hear that little voice, right, saying, when we, we say, well, I'm sorry, it's not going to work out today, or if you could just give me a few minutes. But dad, you promised. A promise is a very sacred thing to a child especially. Um, and it should, be, it should be sacred to us. It's kind of in that vein that David asked God to do what he promised. It's almost, it's, 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 when, when, when our children do that for us, when they remind us of our promises, they're really uh, beseeching us based on our goodness, based upon the truth that we live by. This is the same way with David. He asked God to do what he promised. This is verse 25. He says, Lord, you've, you've, you've given these, these words. Confirm them. Lord, this is what you said. And now do them. God will be glorified in David's life and Israel too. But notice David's only grounds for his prayer are, his, are God's promises. Notice what it says there in verse uh, 27. He says, uh, Lord, you've made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. He doesn't say, you know what, Lord? You promised to build me a house, and you're right, because I'm going I'm to be this great king, and I'm going to rule wonderfully, and you, you made the right choice, Lord. That's not what he says. He says, I found courage to pray this prayer to you. I mean, he's taking some chutzpah, if I could use that term. David has got some chutzpah when he prays these things. But he's praying them because God said them first. His only grounds for his prayer are God's promises, not his performance. You see, God, not David or Israel, is the only one who can make this happen. God is the only one who can establish David's kingdom forever. He's the only one who can establish Israel forever. He's the only one who can establish David's dynasty He's the only one who can truly rule Israel for all these years. This reminds us that David is a man who knows himself and knows God. He knows it himself and that David recognizes he needs a king too. King David is not so great that he can't sit underneath the kingdom, the kingship of, of his God. And David knows that without God, he is nothing. Referencing John 15, I found myself drawn to John 15 this week for some reason. In John 15, Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. With whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. 
David knows that. Do you know that? <laughs> Do you recognize that we need to abide in Christ? And I think that it simply means just resting in him. Just what David kind of is doing in his posture in verse 18. He's resting. He's talking with the Lord. He know, David knows that without God, he is nothing. He is back, in, back hanging out with the sheep. The youngest son taking care of the sheep. Where would you be without the Lord this morning? Thankfully, many of us were raised in the church. We can't imagine life without all these things. But some of you, some of you uh, have had a later conversion life, and you know what it's like. You can especially be instructive of the rest of us. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. We can't be good scientists or accountants or, or parents. We can't be good um, Christians in any way. We'll talk about that a little bit more in John 15 in just a minute. Let me finish with a few thoughts this morning. First, there's plenty of drama in the presence of God. There's plenty of drama in the presence of God. What I mean by that is that David sits before the Lord, and there's just this amazing prayer that comes out. Um, it's important for us, I think, to sit in God's presence, is it not? To really spend time before the Lord. And of course, you're here this morning, so I'm preaching to the choir. You obviously think it's important, or you, somebody that brought you here thought it was important. Um, but do we actually think about the idea that we are engaging God's presence and we walk in these doors? So many of us, particularly those of us in leadership, we're thinking about, uh, you know, is, is the sound working correctly? Uh, are the songs in the right order? Uh, why is there paint on the walls? Uh, we're, you know, we're very distracted by all these kinds of different things. Those of us have children worked very hard to get here, right? And so we're just, we're just hoping to hear five minutes of the sermon. Uh, maybe, that's, maybe, that's, maybe that's where you're at. I, I've been there. I understand. Uh, we're thinking about lunch afterwards. We're thinking about having to talk to someone that's been an unpleasant conversation. We're thinking about all kinds of other things. But for one hour or so, can we set these things aside and be like David and really sit in God's presence and rest there. Because it's exciting. There's exciting things happening. Now, I don't think that we're going to have, we're going to have this kind of prayer where we're going to have uh, uh, some sort of new covenant given to us. I know that won't happen because Jesus in the covenant of grace is the last covenant given to us. But there's a drama to worship. There's an excitement that we should look forward to. And I would also argue that the same thing happens in our personal devotional lives. That again, I realize sometimes it's like a chore. It's like brushing our teeth or combing our hair or taking the dog out for a walk or whatever it is. But God meets you in a place. The Lord of hosts, the God who made the universe, spends time with you. What an invitation to realize how exciting that is. So when people say church is boring, either... Either I, either I led the service incorrectly or you're really boring. <laughs> um, because church should not be a boring place. It should be a place where we meet, where we meet God. And when we meet God, that's when we were, we're, we were reminded of gospel promises that hopefully meet, uh, bring us to, to laughter and to tears. There's plenty of drama in the presence of God. There's also plenty of power in engaging God in prayer. Right? 
And sometimes I think this is misstated in different places. I know a, fr a friend of mine who's not a particularly, uh, he's a religious person, but not really a great Christian. I put it that way. He's kind of one of those folks that thinks that Jesus, Muhammad, whatever, they all wind up in the same place. And he would say, there's, there, he always talks about though, the touts that there's power in prayer. Well, there's power in prayer, but it's not in the prayer, prayer, it's in the one that's, a, that's hearing the prayers. It's in God's power. And sometimes I think we're also afraid a little bit, and we should be, there's kind of a, a bad theology out there, a dominion theology called name it and claim it. Or a, 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 it's a, kind of a, a, a theology that basically expresses that God's riches are ours. That if, if we ask God for a new car or a new house or all kinds of other things, that God will give it to us if we just believe strong enough. It's a kind of a version of prosperity uh, gospel or theology. See, I do believe there's something called name it and claim it. But it's not, we don't name, we don't claim God's promises for our material benefit. We, we claim God's promises for our spiritual well-being. Look at verse 27. David says, For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Again, David's prayer is not, he doesn't bring the boldness because of anything else other than the fact that God has given it to him already. John 15, 7. I told you I was coming back to John, John chapter 15. Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. Uh, I can't be the only one that's ever looked at that and said, God, why don't you, can, how does that work exactly? Uh, because I really would like to have, you know, fill in the blank. I'd like to have a great education. I'd like to have a good career. I'd like to have a start a family. I would like to have my children obey me sometimes. I'd like to have my, uh, my, 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 my parents get off my back. Whatever it is. But see, if we rest in Christ, if we abide in him, and his words abide in us, we're changed. We're being shaped into his heart and his promises. So when we ask for things, we ask for the right things. And God is, is grateful and, and happy to give them to us. So believe in name, and, name it and claim it. But name those spiritual blessings that, that are promised in the scriptures. Seek them out and you'll find them. Finally, there's plenty of assurance in God's grace. In verse 18, David had said, you basically, you have brought me this, this far. He asked him a question, but you brought me this far. And again, Jesus talks about that in John chapter 15, verse 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so proved be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my command Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. There's plenty of assurance in God's grace. Here, Jesus is saying that if, if, if we simply prove ourselves to be his disciples, that if we just live out what, what God's already given to us, um, we will have these things. We will have joy. We'll have assurance. How many of us have often wondered, perhaps you're wondering this morning, is, is God really, is this really happening? Is, did God really send his son and if he did, how can Jesus really love me? 
Well, he does, and he has, and he will. Um, Jesus has brought us this far. He brought David this far. Let me continue on, beginning verse in thir verse 13 of that same chapter. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. God's grace tells us that we have been chosen, not because we're so lovely or powerful or wonderful or so talented, but because God delights in qualifying us through his grace. God delights in qualifying us. So this morning, beloved, if you're in Christ, remember that he has chosen you to be his. Rest in his presence and stand on his promises as you live your lives before this broken world, a world that is so in desperate need of God's grace, a world that needs to know that there is a true God in heaven who sent his son to live and die for sinners such as us and such as them. Lord, do your work within us. Let's pray as we come to the Lord's table. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this prayer from David, this response to your grace. Lord, may our lives be prayers responsive, responsive to your grace. Make, Lord, our living, our Christian living, fruit for your kingdom. And Lord, may we simply be reminded to be humble enough to, be, to remind ourselves we are beggars showing other beggars where we can find food. And Lord, may we show our friends, our non-believing friends and family members that very same gospel that you have opened to us and transformed our lives with. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.